This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions today. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it seems like summer is here. Um, It's come on us pretty quickly now that we have 90-degree weather coming, and it's been a big shift, but We want people to realize they need to be careful, careful with your activity level uh, because you want to get out and do more and make sure you're getting acclimated to doing that as well as staying hydrated and be careful of sun exposure. Uh, Today's one of my favorite shows uh, was we get to have my good friend, Dr. Michael Joyce, join us. And Dr. Joyce is an orthopedic surgeon. He is one of the founders at the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute And CJRI has been one of our original sponsors here for the show. They allow us to come on the air to you. And he is one of the founders there. His office is at 84 Glastonbury Boulevard. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff today, Um, not just joint replacement, but the treatment of hip pain in athletes. Uh, So many athletes come to me, runners, with hip pain. So often they think it's their back and it's really their hip. Um, so we get them over to Dr. Joyce, who is really has special expertise in that. One of the things at CJRI and what Dr. Joyce has always believed in is evidence-based medicine. And I can't help but listen to all the news broadcasts. The state of Connecticut is big on let's use marijuana for everything. Now they agreed to three more conditions hydrocephalus, trigeminal neuralgia, and migraine headaches. Gosh, we don't have any evidence basis that it works for those things, works at all. Forget about working better than accepted medications. But there's this pressure coming from somewhere to now expand the 22 conditions that you can use marijuana for. I mean, migraine headaches, my gosh. Um, and we have good treatments for trigeminal neuralgia. And I got to tell you, if you have hydrocephalus, you need to see a neurosurgeon, okay? Marijuana is not going to fix that problem. But once again, in the state of Connecticut, we have gone to legislating healthcare without good evidence. And studies that are being done have been ignored. One of the studies has been at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, And we had those folks on, the trauma people here. They're looking at oral marijuana for rib fractures. It's a great study. People get treated traditionally with narcotics versus marijuana. Who gets better faster? Is it better to use than the narcotics? Um, Does it have a better effect? We'll get some information. At least we'll get some information to make a decision rather than approving it for everything. This day in medicine, June 10th, 1735, Dr. John Morgan was born. Dr. Morgan was a Philadelphia physician who co-founded the medical faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. He did that in 1765. Why I brought that up is because 
Dr. Morgan is very typical of someone who back in 1765 was thinking big. He was a big thinker. He, he thought he had broad goals. I mean, to start founding a medical faculty at a university is tremendous. And that's one of the things I'm going to be chatting with the neurology residents about this week. Uh, this week, I'm meeting with them on Tuesday at the UConn Neurology uh, meeting, and it's going to give me time to chat with the residents about things that you don't typically learn about in your residency, meaning what happens when you leave residency and go to another um, – go to a, a job? How do you find a job after residency? So many of us are accustomed to – we always thought, right, you got one job, you had your job, and that was the job you're going to have for life, whether it be in a fa- – in, in a you know, in a factory, whether it be in medical care, as Dr. Joyce and I both know, that those things change because the system is changing and you have to be akin to that. So actually, I asked them to read a book called Who Moved My Cheese? It's a small book by Spencer Johnson. came out in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And it's a very small book and it really tells almost a fairy tale of two mice and two people and how they go out and try to find cheese. The The bottom line is that two of the mice always knew that things were changing and they had to change with the times, whereas others felt themselves to be content at what they did, somewhat arrogant, and in the end really didn't have any cheese left and had to finally adapt. So the, it's a great book, and, and I hope to be spending time with them, and it's something – that we can all learn from in terms of how things are changing, not just in medicine, but in life in general. This week in Grand Rounds, um, I had a great talk, actually. It was from Dr. Sarah Myra Benchaiva. Dr. Benchaiva spoke to us about driving restrictions on people with seizures. And it's very interesting to see how those restrictions change from state to state and actually country to country. Most European countries, after having a seizure, an epileptic seizure, you can't drive for two years. Um, In China and India, if you have an epileptic seizure, you can never drive again. In the United States, there are only about five states that have mandatory reporting. Connecticut is not one of them. We are not mandated to report a patient who has had a seizure, but the typical – time frame to come back after a seizure is usually about six months if it's a seizure. And everyone is different. Every situation is different. Every patient is different. So with that, you know, there's a lot left to the discretion of the physician here in Connecticut, which is the way it should be in terms of how has your patient responded to changes in medication and how have they responded and been responsible in terms of not driving. Unfortunately, not everybody follows the rules, and we do have that problem. So she presented several different facts. I mean, 2.9 million Americans suffer from epilepsy, but in 1906 was the first recorded automobile crash and death due to a seizure. So this has been a long-term problem. And fortunately, epilepsy causes less than 0.1% of all the motor vehicle accidents in the United States. So actually, I'm hoping to get her on as a guest because it was so informative, uh, not just to me, but I think uh, to many of our listeners. 
So we're going to take a short break. And next up, we're going to be chatting with my guest, Dr. Michael Joyce. Let me give you the phone numbers now, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. Now, if you don't want to call in, you can shoot me an email right here on the show at info at alessimd.com, and we'll be happy to answer your questions. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. who will be at the Mohegan Sun this week on Tuesday night. Uh, train will be there, and that's always a great time at the Mohegan Sun. So much going on there, uh, especially with their new hotel open. Uh, the Connecticut Sun will be playing there tonight. So there's always something going on. Uh, train there this week, and they're getting ready for the big Barrett-Jackson auto show. Uh, we're with my guest today is uh, Dr. Michael Joyce. Dr. Joyce has been in practice here in Connecticut since 1995. Gosh, I'm feeling old right now. He's been at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center since 2004. And as I mentioned, is one of the founders of the Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute. Mike, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be here, Tony. Always a good time. Mike, let's talk a little bit about some of the history behind CJRIs. I mean, we all know of it as really being a leader in joint replacement, but how did it all get started and give people a little sense of the history behind it? Well, it's been exciting at CJRI. We actually will celebrate our 10-year anniversary, which is uh, amazing. But I think even more interesting is is how we started because it's a unique story, not for Connecticut, in healthcare throughout the country. You know, hospitals start and run programs, large physician practice, orthopedic practices start and run programs. But what we did is the orthopedic surgeons that are really focused on joint replacement surgery as a big part of their practice from different orthopedic practices and from different hospitals through the central area of Connecticut came together to kind of take over and direct in a much more forceful way how patient care is delivered in joint replacement patients. And it was physician-directed, physician-led. We're the ones that wanted to do it. And we just needed a partner that would allow the physicians who know this the best to have free reign and then the kind of support we needed. And that's where St. Francis came to the plate and, and just said, we trust you guys to do this. We will be a willing partner with you. And, and we will not have a contentious physician-hospital relationship, but a very supportive, synergistic relationship. And at that moment, we were off to the races. And the physicians to a person will tell you that the support from the hospital has been fantastic over the years. But at the same time, we'll tell you that the ideas we've had to improve patient care, uh, to be responsive to the needs of our patients, to try to take care of our patients the way they want to be taken care of, while at the same time providing the absolute best evidence-based care – has, has been the goal, and we've been allowed to run with it. And it's been very exciting to the benefit of our patients. Can you explain a little bit about evidence-based care and how it applies to CJRI? Well, I think that, you know, we saw in our individual practice, physicians, of course, we go to conferences, we do lots of continuing education. We all need to be reboard certified, you know, on given intervals. Or it's a big program called maintenance of certification. So as an individual doctor doing hip or knee replacement, I am always learning and progressing. 
But like you know, back in the days when you had the, the bush pilots flying through the skies, they were good pilots, but they didn't have an airport. And we needed an airport. And what evidence-based medicine does is it gives us the rules of the road. You know, what are the things we need to know to take care of our patients? Not based on my individual training or my experience, but on studies that are designed and then executed in a way to find out what the exact facts are that govern how certain things in medicine occur. So what is the best way to prevent a blood clot after a hip or a knee replacement? You need studies to do that. You need to do really good basic medical research to do that. And once you have the result, then you have the different physicians that all did it one way, the way they learned, the way they were trained, that now have to look at this new evidence and perhaps change their practices. And what CGRI has done is as a group, we move forward and we, and, we, and we do these things the same way, just as every pilot coming into an airport has to follow the same rules so that the whole traffic is maintained. If you come and have a hip replacement done at Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute, you know that there's policemen in the sky, there's people watching everything that are making sure that safety is at the foundation based upon the evidence we've generated. What about what are some of the statistics now when we're dealing at CJRI? I mean, how many joint replacements have you guys done over there? I mean, really? I mean, it was really the first institute just doing joint replacement here in Connecticut. Um, my own father came up from New York, and you replaced his hip uh, many years ago. So, how many have you done? What are some of the statistics behind it? The um the, the number that we've done has been growing since the day we've opened. Uh, we did over 3,700 uh, last year alone. Uh, each week, I mean, 100, 150 more get done on a weekly basis, and the numbers are quite staggering. Um, and we have a lot of surgeons that have worked there. We have our core group of, of people that have found it, but we keep adding physicians. We had new physicians join just in the last week or so. And then we have doctors that do a portion of their, their cases there, and that's where the volume comes. And when these doctors come, you know, the airport's there. We make the rules of the road, and they kind of come on board and standardize what they're doing. We keep very close track of the outcome of our patients. And so when patients uh, arrive and are seen, they get emails on a regular basis that survey their entire experience. And then we have a staff of researchers. We spend over a million dollars a year on this. And these people look at uh, these scientists, these me medical specialists, look at everything that happened to them at the time and after the replacement. We follow up by calling the patients, emailing the patients, and we have this massive database that provides analytical information exactly on how things are going. So I can log on to my dashboard, and right at that moment, I can see the satisfaction of my patients at each stage of their recovery, and I'll benchmark my patients compared to our institute and national benchmarking data. I know the exact number of patients that have any little problem or, or hiccup along the way. I mean, did they have urinary retention post-op, which is common? Do they have an adverse reaction to their pain medication? And we see all those numbers and we do analytics to determine how it needs to be refocused if we see a problem arising or an opportunity to deliver better care. Um, and that's where the numbers have come from. But um, in terms of volume, I mean, we're like seventh biggest in the country now on an annual basis. Mike, what would you say would be the biggest or among the biggest uh, innovations that you've come up with there? I mean, in terms of – I mean. Joint replacement, we've always been concerned with infection, things like that, um, and complications. You said uh, mm -hmm. clots. What are some of the most important lessons you've learned over the years now at CJRI based on the studies you've done and, and evidence basis? I think there's a lot important, especially from a patient's perspective, very important. There's a new medication that we introduced several years ago that decreases bleeding related to the procedure. 
And by implementing that in an institutional basis and carefully following the results, we decreased the number of blood transfusions um, from about 30% to less than 1%. So people don't require a blood transfusion and all the stuff that goes with it doesn't come uh, along. And they don't end up with a low level of anemia, which can make you tired and fatigued after surgery. We've used all different types of medicines to prevent blood clots, uh, which is a devastating problem with major surgeries. You know, and orthopedics is one of those. And a lot of the research leading to these medications has been done by large pharmaceutical companies promoting new, very expensive drugs. When we did our own internal research on thousands of patients, it turns out the safest thing is aspirin. So on a broad spectrum in our patients that don't have other risk factors, we simply use aspirin. We save actual money in the healthcare system to help drive costs lower, which is critical, but also get better results. And that's important and we follow. But that took, you know, convincing all of our specialists in other areas of medicine to help them understand aspirin would be a a great way to go with this. But I think the biggest thing overall has been really pain management, which kind of just dovetails into what's happening with this worry we have these days about the use of narcotics and all of our patients and the risk of getting addicted to narcotics. And there's new medications. One in particular we use is called Exparel. And Exparel is an injectable medication that allows for a slow, gradual release of a Novocaine-like substance. And it's a sophisticated medicine. It's expensive, but it pays for itself. And the anesthesiologists that we work with have developed ultrasound-based techniques so they can actually look in the area around the knee and then infuse that medicine in that area and get a tremendous amount of pain relief, but only at the knee. All the muscles in the leg keep working. And we have patients, 75-year-old patient I did this week, has his knee replacement and is walking in the hallways three hours later, which is just you know amazing. I've been doing hip replacement, I mean knee replacements now for 25, 30 years. To see people walking the day of surgery is is kind of a stunning achievement. A third of our patients are using virtually no narcotics now through the entire process of getting better, even when they go home and things like that. So now we're to the point where last year, a thousand of our hip and knee replacement patients were home within 23 hours of surgery which leads us to look at the opportunity to begin to look at hip and knee replacements, possibly as an outpatient procedure. I think patients would love that. Do you think that can be done? I think it is is being done a little bit, you know, around the country, there's places. I had a patient this week who came into my office, you know, relatively healthy person with a really bad hip. She said, look, I had back surgery last year and they let me go home the same day. Is that something that's possible with a hip replacement? And we have a program. We spent over a year now developing a program and we've done you know just a couple dozen patients so far where we've had them have the opportunity to go home the same day. It's a lot of things that have to happen for the patient the day before surgery, sure. education when she arrives. She comes in, she has her hip replacement. An hour after surgery, she is walking in the hallways. Two hours after surgery, she was going up and down stairs. Um, four hours after surgery, she was at home and she thought it was the best thing ever. Uh, that's just amazing, actually, to even think that you could have a whole joint replaced and go home the same day, obviously to a supportive environment. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Michael Joyce. Uh, the phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. We're talking about joint replacement. In the next segment, we're going to be talking a little bit about hip pain, especially as noted in athletes. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And we're with my friend and guest today, Dr. Michael Joyce, who is an orthopedic surgeon at St. Francis and in private practice in Glastonbury. 
And Mike, we were talking a little bit about outpatient things. And one of the, I guess one of the newer things has been the hip has always been a problem for athletes. And I know that you've kind of spearheaded doing arthroscopic surgery in the hip. We always associate arthroscopic surgery with doing a knee or something of that nature. And it's kind of interesting. I know you don't know this, but but I spoke to two young surgeons um, who said they refer their hips to you for arthroscopic surgery. So what got you interested in arthroscopic surgery for the hip and why is it such a challenge for for orthopedic surgeons? Oh, that's a great question and uh, it's a fun one to kind of dig into. I've been doing hip arthroscopy for 20 years actually and um, I was very fortunate in the early part of my training to work with a physician, uh, Tom Bird. Um, he is uh, he trained where I did my fellowship with Jim Andrews and, and uh, Clancy down in Birmingham, Alabama at the Sports Medicine Institute. And when he left there, he really wanted to be an innovator in an area of orthopedics and he kind of picked hips. And at the time, there was really almost no hip arthroscopy being done anywhere. And he literally wrote the textbook. This is how you do it. And I got to know him and, and through this interaction through where I had trained. So, you know, back in the 90s, you know, he came and he was starting to show the early things. And we were using instruments based on knees to do hip arthroscopy. But he began to develop a whole new set of instrumentation that allowed access into the hip joint uh, and the techniques and principles that are necessary to do it. Um, and through the 90s and early 2000s, we were doing very simple things in hips. If there was something floating around in a hip joint or, you know, a little broken something hip joint, we could go in, trim it out, pull it out. And then through a lot of just wonderfully uh, brilliant uh, hip surgeons throughout the world, we began to really advance the principles of hip arthroscopy. And the last 10 years has seen really all that come to fruition um, through a wide variety of, con of conditions. Uh, the hip has, you know, a lot more bone surrounding it than the hip or the knee. So getting in is technically a more more challenging thing to do. But I think we've overcome that with instrumentation and, and technology. Um, but one thing that's interesting from a patient perspective is that when you have hip as a problem, uh, hip pain as a problem, you don't know where that's coming from always. I mean, sometimes exactly. it's, oh, it's a big deal. And yeah. that's my problem because yeah. people come to me for back pain and I have to say, I think it's your hip. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, how do you narrow that down? Well, you know, you you have to kind of work through the differential diagnosis. So, you know, probably 10% of our patients think they have a knee problem. Um, as you said, you know, probably 20% think they have a back problem. People kind of point all over the hip, the back of the hip, over the buttocks region, to the lateral side of the hip, to the groin area. And you have to know the diagnostic examination skills that kind of redirect the patient to the area where the problem originates into the hip itself. And when we start talking about the hip, we divide the pathology that we see, the problems that are really plaguing our patients into inside of the actual joint, the ball and socket joint. There you can have damage to the cartilage. You can tear the liner, which is called the hip labrum, and develop a labral tear. Um, and those structures can be hurt. There's a ligament in the hip that occasionally is damaged. And then we have the area surrounding the hip joint itself, and that would include the muscles and tendons around it. Uh, there's some big bursal tissues. People have things that snap and click and lock around the hip, and all of those are the tendons that surround the hip. And, and we can, again, arthroscopically approach all those areas as well. But it's just a curious phenomena in, in the way the body works that if you have a labral tear in your hip and it's in the joint, only about 60% of people think it's the joint themselves. They kind of point everywhere else. And sometimes it may hurt more sitting for an hour than standing for an hour. Sometimes it may have occurred while running, but then starts to plague them driving in their car. And these patterns we know well. I mean, we take care of this all the time. We see the patterns. 
Um, you start by understanding how a patient has a susceptibility, maybe the way the bone was formed. Some people are born with a very shallow hip, which we call dysplasia. Some people are born with a hip that has way too much bone around it. So every time they flex their hip, they're banging into the edge and banging it up. Uh, and that's called femoral acetabular impingement or FAI for short. And um, some of that I can see on an x-ray pretty quick. Sometimes it takes an MRI or CAT scan to see more. Um, but they have this susceptibility, and we think some of it originates you know, in the wound when you're developing. But we also know that early sports participation when the hip is growing from ages like 9, 10, 11, 12, even 13 and some, at that point, the repetition of sports is changing the shape of the hip just slightly, making you prone to problem when you're in your late teens or 20s if you're in that sport. So that's why we see if you're a big fan of ice hockey with the, you know, the whole Stanley Cup going on now, it's hard not to be. But so many ice hockey players are having hip problems because they're so active in the sport when they're young. They develop this FAI type deformity and then five, six, eight years later, they get the labral tears that go with that. And as a surgeon fixing it, you have to repair the labrum and then correct that underlying bone problem, reshape the hip into a proper thing. We call that a reconstruction. Uh, it's all done with biological tissues, your own tissue, all done arthroscopically, all done as an outpatient procedure, uh, but a fun thing. And it's, um, you know, I, I've done a hundred of these already this year. I mean, that's just how many there are out there. And in 2009, we formed the International Hip Arthroscopy Society. We had about 40 people involved in this country and 50 or so from around the world. And it's a really great international organization. We're up to 500 worldwide members now, wonderfully successful people that have just brilliant minds that keep dissecting and figuring out and expanding what we're able to do. And, you know, two of the women on our basketball team for UConn last year, I had fixed their hips last summer. Um, and you couldn't pick those two out of the lineup. You can't, they all out playing great last year. And um, that's what we've been able to do. Uh, I know because one of my staff members had the surgery by you and it, it is it's really just amazing that you can get somebody back to running, um, you know, a, a sport that takes a lot of pounding so quickly. That's right. One of the problems I come up against, and I think a lot of people do, is after they have had other surgery, so they've had knee surgery or back surgery, and then develop hip pain. Yeah. Um, how do you approach that? You know, you see these patients that – you know, have this kind of issue with the musculoskeletal system where different things kind of arise. It could be the setting. I mean, it may be a very demanding industrial job they're involved in that's taking a toll on their body and has kind of wrecked havoc from their back to the hip to the knee. Uh, or it could be just, you know, genetically they were born with just not the best. I mean, I, I think some of my patients were probably born to be runners their whole life, but 90% probably should be doing a wide variety of activities and not just be a runner. Uh, we call it the 90-10 problem. 10% of people get to do it for 90 years. 90% of people maybe do it for 10 years. Um, but, you know, I've even had patients who probably didn't even need the knee surgery if they had gotten the hip fixed. I mean, that's it. And, and patients that, you know, probably don't have a big back problem if they have gotten the hip fixed uh, first. And so we look at that sequencing, we call it. Even, um, you know, there's been talk about what we call sports hernia, which is an abdominal wall muscle tear. Um, we know that that is closely related um, to what goes on with uh, hip pathology and, and there's an interplay between those type of things. Um, it's really amazing, really the innovations and, and how arthroscopy has changed uh, so much. I just attended a lecture at the New England Orthopedic Society where I was scheduled to speak mm -hmm. last week and, uh, about really carpal tunnel you know, arthroscopic surgery and, and putting a scope in there and how much that's evolved. We remember when it first came out and it was mm – -hmm. 
it's kind of dreadful at first. I mean, the, the results, and now it's 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 so routine. So um, we're going to take another short break, and then we're going to get back to talk a little bit about something we really like to talk about this time of year, and that's the KJ Life Flag Football Tournament, uh, sponsored by the KJ Life Foundation. And we're going to tell you more about that right after this break. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds in our last segment uh, of the program. And today we're chatting with uh, Dr. Michael Joyce. Dr. Joyce is an orthopedic surgeon who has been in practice since uh, 1995 now. And uh, his office is 84 Glastonbury Boulevard in Glastonbury. The phone number is there, 860-652-8883. And, um, Mike, one of the things we like to talk about is the KJ Life Flag Football Tournament that's coming up next week. Can you give our listeners a little background to the KJ Life Foundation and really everything you folks have accomplished there? Well, thanks, and I I really do love the opportunity to be able to talk about this. Um, Kenneth Joyce was – I have four boys. Kenneth Joyce was my third son, and we lost him in an accident in in, in 2008. And my wife and Kenneth's brothers um, really wanted to find a way that that – Kenneth's legacy could live on uh, for a long period of time and and help us you know get through the loss and help his friends in the in the Glastonbury community you know have a way of, of remembering him. Um, we formed the Kenneth Joyce Foundation at that time and Kenneth um, when he was very little I was picking him up from football practice he loved athletics and when I got there he just had this huge smile on his face and I'm like you know how was practice and he says well the coaches had a meeting and we just played the whole day best time ever and and that was the motivation that led to our flight football tournament so it's the KJ Live flight football tournament it's um uh in Glastonbury and, and the riverfront park there um uh, this will be the ninth year we've had it it's um we have 500 to 600 kids that participate and um it's it's basically a 5 on 5 organized tournament they get organized into 80 different teams and three different age brackets um the youngest kids are not allowed to have a coach, but they can have a kind of a parent hang out with them. But when you get to the 6th, 7th, and 8th, and the ninth, 10th uh, graders, they have no coaches. So the kids play, and this is how they do it. And it's it's all girls teams, all boys teams, and we have co-ed teams. It's, it's however they want to do it. They name their teams. They design their jerseys. The kids are in charge of playing the whole thing. It's a double elimination tournament. We play more games in that day than the NFL does in the entire season. Uh, we have a hundred volunteers of the most dedicated, wonderful uh, friends from the community you could ever imagine, uh, and we have raised you know a lot of money over a long time um, through this event. Uh, the event for all the kids participating is is pretty neutral. I mean, they get these great T-shirts we give out and a whole packet of stuff. Um, and we've been able through the foundation now to run a lot of events. We run a big uh, blood drive every year. We've been able to, over the years to to generate seven hundred donations of blood. Uh, through the Red Cross. We also have given 87 college scholarships. We just gave eight more just recently, all to the most inspiring young high school kids that have accomplished so much. We're just wonderful uh, leaders in the area. Um, so that, you know, anybody can come. We have great food and there's tons of fun things to do. The UConn football players, a bunch of them always show up every year and hang out I with do. the kids. And they're just incredible in the community spirit that uh, they brought in with uh, Coach Edsel now. They're keeping that tradition alive and getting the, the guys out there. Um, 
It is fun to watch an all-boys team play an all-girls team when they're in seventh grade. I mean, the boys <laughs> are confused. The girls are way more clever than they are. And uh, it's, it's a really just – everything is fun. It's a wonderful way to remember my son. I have to tell you, it, it really is a great day. And uh, the times I've been able to attend, uh, it's just it, – it's really the epitome of community action. Uh, but one of the things, I guess, I mean – that's like the first flag football tournament I've heard of. And now flag football has become the fastest growing youth sport. Why? Well, um, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah. Does it have something to do with this tournament? Uh, because we didn't see that much of it, really. <laughs> well, it'd be cool if it was because of our tournament. I think, you know, the concussion stuff in football yeah. has kind of driven it. And you know way more about that than I do. Um, you know, I think the other thing about flag football is, you know, everybody has a way to play. I mean, you know, when you watch these, these young girls that are sixth, seventh grade that play soccer all the time, they are lightning fast, you know, and, and the boys have a hard time keeping up with them. And, and, um, and then they come up with these crazy plays. There's this one play that one of the girls teams had last year where they hiked the ball and then they all just screamed. And the boys standing on the other side of the line of scrimmage just froze and the one girl just ran in for a touchdown. Oh, my gosh. So fun. Uh, other plans for KJ Life. So mm-hmm. the scholarships are distributed to young people in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, on what basis? Do they have projects they present or – the um, the KJ Life it really stands for um, uh, KJ is you know, it's Kenneth Joyce and then it's it's uh, leadership inspiration and being a friend to everyone you know and, and and this is you know before all the bullying stuff became so popular this has been kind of I the know. mantra and we have them write an essay as part of the scholarship application where they try to explain to us where they think the role of leadership fits in and then we look through the stuff they've done in their time in high school and, and see if they really exemplify those principles. Have they uh, you know, been a leader? Have they uh, seen from the letters we see, uh, been able to be supportive and friendly to all the people in the community? And it is hard to pick. I mean, I, I, the young people these days really blow my mind. They're just remarkable kids. And it's hard to go through and just find some. But um, the kids we see every year, it's just fun to meet them and see what they've accomplished in such a short time and what their goals are heading off to college and doing that. Um, we've also supported different leadership foundations. We've sent kids to le- leadership camps from time to time. Uh, we've had speakers come in and address the kids. Uh, we're a source of funds when those opportunities arise uh, that the people in our community can come and say, is there a way you can support this? We help support the, – there's a football camp for the youth football team, and we've supported that as well. Over the years – I mean, so it's eight years uh, – seven years now since uh, mm-hmm. that you've had the tournament going? This will be our eighth eighth or ninth. Eighth or ninth year. Yeah. So – You've really seen a whole cycle of people go through college and and graduate and and come back. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. We were at when we were at the awards banquet uh, on the when we give the uh, scholarships out. Uh, one of the women in the audience came up and she had won it six years ago. She already graduated from college. She was in medical school and. I mean, that just blew my mind. It, it, for my wife, that's a hard. You know, my wife finds it's a very hard night when you go out the scholarships because it brings back so many memories. But to see her, it was uplifting. You just sure. I mean, that we had a little teeny role in helping kind of move her along, and it was great. Just super. Mike, thank you so much for your time, and and really thank you for everything you do in the community, not just from the healthcare, but for everything uh, you folks have done through the KJ Life Foundation. It, it, it's been great. And, um, and and your patience as well as the community appreciate it. Oh, Tony, I just love having the time to spend with you on the phone and talk about th- on the show here and talk about this stuff. It's been a great time. To- Sounds great. I want to thank my guest today as I have, uh, Michael Joyce. Um, many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Ulko is on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. 
Next week on Healthy Rounds, I'm going to be away. So we have a taped show for you, so we will not be taking live calls, uh, but there will be a very healthy uh, discussion on health care. When I come back, uh, we're working on getting Dr. Kevin Felice on the program. As many of you know, Dr. Felice heads the uh, ALS Association Clinic and the MDA Clinic at the Hospital for Special Care, uh, really working with the sickest of our patients in the field of neuromuscular disease. He has the largest population of patients with ALS, and we're trying to get him here, but I know that it's at the time of the travelers, and so much of the money from the travelers is going to that program to help folks with ALS. For those of you not familiar with that, it's Lou Gehrig's disease. So we're hoping to get him on because there's a new antioxidant drug that's uh, being uh, given. You can get it by infusion and they will have it at the hospital for special care and have it available. So we're hoping to get him on. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. I also want to remind you to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. You go to www.registerme.org and you can instantly become an organ donor. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Till then, stay well.